Hey, what's up? And welcome back, storytellers. Whether you are a longtime listener or it's your first time tuning in, I am so happy you stopped by. Over the holidays, our Patreon got a huge makeover with new benefits and even a brand new tier. One of the new benefits we added for our patrons is my live stream virtual write-in, and the very first one is happening on Saturday, January 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and that's 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. This is only available to patrons in the Green Tea tier, the Oolong Tea tier, and the Puer Tea tier. I'm pretty sure at this point you're kind of wanting more details. So what does this all mean? So once a month, I'm setting aside an hour to record myself live as I work on my writing and you can tune in from the comfort of your own home, have your laptop or notebook and pen all set up so that you can take advantage of this writing session by joining me and fellow patrons. Seeing someone actually sitting down and doing the work and being able to engage with our Patreon family in the chat box is such a great way to motivate yourself to show up and move the needle with your work in progress. Patrons can update each other about their progress or even talk about the kinds of goals you're trying to set for that one hour, and we can all check in at the end to see if we reached our goals. If you'd love to participate in our first ever virtual write-in, it's happening on Saturday, January 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and that's 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And be sure you're signed up as a patron in either the Green Tea Tier, the Oolong Tea Tier, or the Poor Tea Tier. Head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea to sign up. If you're already signed up to our Chrysanthemum Tea Tier, you can adjust and level up to any one of those three tiers that I mentioned earlier to join me for the live write-in. I'm so excited to see you there and to kickstart the new year in a super productive way. Now on to today's episode featuring Abigail Hingwen. I am so excited to share that this conversation is brought to you by Epic Reads. Abigail is the author of her debut novel, Love Boat Taipei, which just released this week. Abigail and I kick off the conversation talking about how she discovered her love for storytelling at such a young age and how it inspired her career path working in law, business, and being an author. She shares her experience showing her family her writing for the first time and how her vulnerability strengthened her craft. We then dive into her debut novel, Love Boat Taipei, and chat about the inspiration behind the story and how Abigail crafted her characters by drawing from personal experience. She reflects on getting her MFA at Vermont College of Fine Arts and spills her top three takeaways from the program that helped boost confidence in her writing. And later, we talk about her adventurous research process, how to pick the best editor for your story, and tips on finding time to write with an insanely busy schedule. Storytellers, be sure to download the writing prompt that Abigail created just for our community by heading over to her show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash abigail-hang-wen. You'll also find bonus content over in her show notes page with things that tie in with our conversation and it's a super fun behind the scenes glimpse. Also be sure to catch Abigail's Instagram story takeover by heading over to instagram.com slash 88 cups of tea. And if you would love a chance at winning a copy of Love Boat Taipei, be sure to check out our Instagram stories for directions. And this is only open for our US listeners. Now let's dive right in. Hey everyone, I am so excited to have Abigail Hing Wen with us today. Abigail, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you today. I'm very, very pumped to have you on and for the community to get to learn more about you. I would love for listeners to get to know how you first fell in love with storytelling. 
I've always told stories my whole life, but it's not something I actually recognized until later. When I was little, my brother and sister and I would share a room and I would tell them stories all night <laughs> until we got in trouble and had to go to bed. But we would make up these things called group stories. And I laugh that I'm actually talking about it now. But we'd start off assembling the cast of characters, which are basically us, our cousins that we saw on a regular basis in Canada, and a bunch of our friends and the community. And so that cast would just change and grow over the years. And the stories would be about us being alone in the world without adults and getting onto adventures and going through forests and, you know, meeting bad guys. And I just, I just have always told stories like that. And every opportunity I had in school to write a story, I would take it. I'm always curious where that imagination comes from and where it stems from originally. Yeah, that's a great question. I've actually never wondered where it comes from. I assumed it was just something you're, you're kind of born with. I think everyone's naturally curious, but I definitely did read a lot growing up. My mom is actually a school teacher. She specialized in early education. And so our house is full of books. Like she bought us all the Sesame Street books. We had books on tape with all the major fairy tales, which I love to listen to. We had books on record players too. And like the ugly duckling and you know, the wild swans. And I would just be captivated by these stories. It's funny because I, I remember reading a lot through my local school library, but it's not until like I think it wasn't until fourth grade that I really started to remember those books that I read. So I think in fourth grade, I discovered the Chronicles of Narnia on the shelves of my classroom. And I read a lot of Laura Ingalls. And I actually continued to read those books throughout my life, even into adulthood, because I just love them so much. When I read from your bio, right, that you went to Harvard and Columbia Law School. I'm just curious how storytelling affected you in your life growing up that led to college and your choices that you made about life decisions of career choices? You know, I think this is probably a common story. I had no idea that I could ever be a writer professionally. It was just something I did. It was my spare time hobby. And I studied government at Harvard. When I went to law school, like, again, I would, I had a teacher in law school who would allow us to take certain assignments and turn them into whatever we wanted. And so again, I would always take the opportunity to write a short story when I could. And I enjoyed that, but it was more like a side exercise, more the exception than the rule. I remember like points in my life, I'm like, yeah, you know, I've always been a storyteller. I would talk about the things I was studying in government and try to make it interesting to myself. And I was interested, but there were things that were definitely not interesting. But I would have a way of talking about it with my roommates. And my roommates would be like, wow, what you're studying is so interesting. And I remember thinking like, well, that's only because I made it sound interesting. But, you know, I don't know that I was that passionate about it. So it took me a while, I think, to figure out, like, what is it exactly that I'm passionate about? Because storytelling is a medium for content, right? And it was like, it was that part of it that I enjoyed doing. I enjoyed, like, finding what was interesting about what I was working on and sharing that out with other people or talking about it and exchanging ideas. Where are you at right now, like in life with storytelling and fitting that into your career? How was that decision made? Where was that transition? I have a, a definite moment in time that I, I point back to. After I graduated from law school, I was on the track to being a law professor. So I clerked on the D.C. Circuit for a wonderful judge, Judge Rogers. And I had written an article in law school, which I actually had won a national award and I laugh about that article now because I basically made it as close to a fantasy novel as I could. We have to write about law, right? So it was an esoteric piece of law that governed the servants of sovereigns visiting the United States. So basically, if some king or sultan was in our country and they had servants who committed a bad act, what is the law that governs them? And it was called Suing the Sovereign Servant. But basically, I was my way of trying to get write a fantasy novel. 
I was pregnant with my second child and I had worked at a law firm for a few years. So I was basically ready to move into academia, which meant I would have to write another article. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to write an article that five people would read. And at least coming from me, it wouldn't move the needle for anything. And at the same time, I had this idea for a fantasy novel in my head. It was a middle grade fantasy. And my husband was really supportive and encouraging. And he said, you know, you're super excited about this novel idea. Why don't you just try it? And so I did. I actually ended up on bed rest at one point. And while I was on bed rest and then when I was after I gave birth and I was breastfeeding, there was like all this time, just you and the baby breastfeeding. I would just start writing this novel. And I think it took me a couple years and I sent it out into the world and, you know, several agents read it. One agent actually printed it out, handmarked it and mailed it back to me and said, I really think there's something here. So I, I revised it for, it was super encouraging. I revised it, sent it back and then she turned it down, but it was encouraging. And then 10 years later, she is actually my agent today. It's Jill Volpe with New Leaf Literary. When I was choosing among agents for Love Boat Taipei, like, I just felt like I'd come full circle with her. So I think it was that moment I look back on, like when I was giving birth. And like, when you have kids, I think it kind of realigns your priorities because it really raises the bar on the job satisfaction that you need in order to, you know, spend that much time away from them. At the same time, my husband had been recruited to work in tech in California. You know, we moved the family out to the Bay Area and I just didn't go back to work for three years. I stayed home with my kids and I started writing this novel or started writing novels and I found critique partners and started going to SCBWI conferences. And eventually I just I wrote a second one and I got an agent actually, and it was um, otherwise rejected by the publishing houses. And I did go back to law because I felt like I hadn't completed my training and I I needed that as a backstop. And then I ended up getting a job very quickly in-house working in venture capital as lawyer. And that ended up being a really good fit because it was a great job. I got to see a lot of really interesting startup companies working on new technologies in Silicon Valley. And I thought that was just so fascinating And I worked with really wonderful people who had my back and there was no emotional stress at all. And I think that was actually the key is to have a job that fed me and was not all consuming because it was in-house and, you know, you have more control over your schedule as a lawyer if you go in-house versus being at a law firm. And, you know, just really not having work come home with me at night in the form of like actual work or emotional stress. And so during that period was when I really started doing a lot more writing. Um, I would write nine to 12 at night. I got my MFA at Vermont College of Fine Art, which was a distance program. So I spent all my vacation time going to campus for like the 20 days of the year that you need to be there. And then the rest of the time I was exchanging work with my advisors. And I just really grew a lot of my craft. And I would say if you'd asked me at the time, you know, is this a hobby or is this serious? I would have said it's serious, you know, even though I didn't know where it was going. But I also knew that you know, Stephen King had written four novels before he ever published. And so you know, I think I was on five by the time I did but I think what really kept me going is my critique partners and my writing community. They believed in me. They told me they kept reading my stuff, even though I was getting rejected. And I'd come close twice at a major publishing house, but couldn't get their acquisitions. And they just kept faith with me and they kept me through all the ups and downs. And then I got here. Are you still working in the, the lawyer for the venture capital company that you're talking about? Or are you with a new job or where are you at right now? After I got the book deal, I knew it was ramping up and I thought I would have to quit my job because it was going to just be a lot of work. I had seen a number of my friends go through the debut year and I know how crazy it is. Plus, I have a two book deal. So there's a sequel to be written. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. I'm super excited. Um, You know, but I really loved my job in artificial intelligence. So what what ended up happening, I was working venture capital and I started doing our AI investments. And then I 
I started moving more into the business side of things. And about a year and a half ago, I connected with one of the startups that we bought into my company. We acquired them and I've been working with a team doing similar things where they're incubating new technologies. And so it's, it was a good cultural fit. And I just really enjoyed working with that team. So as, as part of my work with that group, I've been speaking on artificial intelligence around the world this year, which was crazy. I was at you know Brussels, Berlin, Beijing. I spoke in Manhattan and I was in London recently for the Partnership on AI, which is a nonprofit that's dedicated to thinking about you know, the ethical issues around AI and, and law and policy. So I've actually just really loved my job. And in my gut, I couldn't let go. And I just like, I, I want to stay in this AI world, you know, be a part of this technology that I really think is going to transform our future. So what I ended up doing was I was at that moment in time at my job, I was doing three different jobs. I was doing the venture capital legal. I was doing like a legal for the business unit in a smaller capacity. And then I was doing all this like thought leadership and the business development for my, my group. So I let go of the legal venture capital jobs because I've done those for you know so many years now and just have focused on the job that I'm currently in. So I'm, I'm kind of playing more like a business development role as well as starting to develop some of my own projects that are relating storytelling and AI. And I'm super excited about it too because I've just begun thinking about it. <laughs> I'm just like, my mouth, my jaw has not left the floor. I'm just like, <laughs> who is this human? Is she AI herself? I'm like, well, hold up. <laughs> You are now mentioning that you're very passionate about getting the word out about AI and how it's beneficial. It sounds like the business side came naturally transitioning from law to the business side. How was that learning curve for you? I would say I'm still in that transition period now. This is just in May that I, I made this change. But I, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. My grandfather in the Philippines on my mom's side um, was an, an entrepreneur. He actually took his college money, left China, went to the Philippines and started a cement company. Wow. Yeah. And so I grew up visiting my family there and they're all in business and they think about, they live and breathe <laughs> business. And I remember never actually liking it that much. I was always, you know, more of the dreamer. And, and so in some ways that wasn't a good cultural fit within my own family. But, you know, I also absorbed it by osmosis. Like I learned how to negotiate from my dad. Actually, in Asia, you know, we'd go to the street markets and the night markets and (laughs) you're supposed to bargain, right? It's part of the experience. So I've been negotiating since I was a kid. And so I think I just have all these. And, you know, a lot of that's also you develop that as a lawyer as well. And so it's been pretty much a natural segue for me. But I, I kind of think of everything that we do is every day we're learning and we're growing new skills. And I think that's maybe the writer part of me that loves to find new ideas and, and new experiences, like really enjoys that aspect of my work. Sounds like everyone in your family is business oriented. Was it almost scarier to then bring in the storytelling aspect and career into your life? How was that like with your family? Were they super supportive because you already are like kicking ass in, you know, you already proved yourself with law and business. You still have your jobs. Like, is that something that's not even an issue with your family? Right. No, so it's a great question. I actually written a piece that's coming out on LitHub in a few weeks about what it was like to share my writing with my family. And my main character in my novel, Love Boat, Taipei Ever Wong, she actually is going through a similar struggle where she is on a path to medical school, um, but really nurses the secret desire to dance. So I was a closet writer. I, I kept my writing a total secret from my family for years for exactly the reasons you talk about. Like they're, you know, practical. They, they immigrated from Asia. My dad came when he was 13 from Indonesia. As the eldest son, he was basically sent into the world to make a better life for his family. And that was, it was an economic life. And my mom, um, you know, she came obviously out of this business family. So very practical. 
my siblings knew, but even like in the law profession, I wasn't really telling anybody. I was just writing because it, it was like a dream. It's just something you do. It's it's really personal. And I didn't really want to share like aspirations of trying to publish a book because it felt like it's very pie in the sky. But eventually my parents did find out. I think they heard through the grapevine through my siblings. And it was like not until years <laughs> later, they're like, are you writing a book? And I was like, I don't, I, I think I really downplayed it that way. Oh yeah, maybe, you know, and but over time, like I started to realize they're not as practical as I held them out or as I thought. Right. So like little things would come out where my mom's like, Hey, I told my dad I would write a book about our family one day. Maybe you'll write it. And I was really surprised that she said that her parents had passed away when she was 17. So she was quite young and she really reveres her parents, I think, because she, she never really got to know them as an adult. So, you know, I've grown up hearing all these amazing stories about her, just her family of 13 brothers and sisters in the Philippines and her father was a rags to riches story and he founded the Manila Metro Hospital. He was also a philanthropist in addition to being an entrepreneur. And, and I see that sense of public service in my parents too, where like when I was in high school, they would go in to see the administrators, not for me or my brother or sister, but actually on behalf of like another immigrant kid in the community who was having trouble with communication, right? So they had that in them and they're quite active in politics. So I think the more I let them in, the more I realized, okay, they actually, there are things that they, they are starting to get. And then of course, I think once they got the book deal, then they completely understood what that meant. And also I think just the opportunity to share stories out of, you know, the Asian American community is, I think they really get that, like how, how cool that is to have a voice and to be able to talk about like, you know, like, so I have 30 Asian American characters in my book and they're all diverse and different in their own ways. And they're, they're all flawed and real and being able to show how multidimensional they are was really important to me. And so I think, you know, my parents are equally excited about that too. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you have a lot of characters in your story. How were you able to pull and draw the inspiration for each one to make sure that they are very much their own person and that they aren't blended into one another? You know, it's so funny because historically I've always had trouble writing characters. I was a plotter. I would come up with these high concepts and then I would like, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't figure out the character part. And it was somewhat true for this book too, because Love Boat, I don't know if you're familiar with the program, but it's a program, a real program. Okay, yes, great. I was shocked. I found out from my girlfriend when we started dating and I was like, wait, is this a thing? How come I never knew about it? Because I would have been down to go. But anyway, <laughs> I was like, no, I never, I, can you please explain this? I, I'm so excited about this. You have no idea. Yeah. For people who aren't familiar with it, it's a program that's been around since the 1960s. Asian American parents have been sending their kids there to learn language and culture and also to find a spouse. And that's why I got the nickname Love Boat. So at the same time that the Taiwanese government that was running the program would go through the list of major high school scholarships. So I was a presidential scholar and they went through the list of those scholars, the Koch scholars, Westinghouse and other ones. Everyone with a Chinese last name would get this trip for free. And so I did. I had since my parents are from the Philippines and Indonesia. I'd actually never heard of the program or, or heard about Love Boat. And so I show up in Taipei and I'm expecting to learn language and culture. And lo and behold, it's this huge party all summer. It's like the party of a lifetime. And the HarperCollins pitch for the book and the jacket flap is like, when on Love Boat, party like the prodigies do. And that's like exactly what happened, right? We were. So there's like a lot of like kind of quintessential experiences that my character goes through, like glamour shots, snake blood sake, sneaking off campus to go clubbing. So I, yeah, just had a blast writing it. Oh my gosh. Okay. I, I have the biggest smile on my face right now because you just brought up glamour shots. Okay. Because let me tell you, <laughs> even though I did not get the honor of attending a love boat, I did go to Taiwan to visit 
and just to meet my dad's family and all that stuff. And of course, the glamour shots. I don't know one Taiwanese person or one person who's gone to Taiwan who has not come back with glamour shot copies. Like, <laughs> and I was like spreading them out in high school. It's like, you can keep this photo. <laughs> Boom. Awesome. It was ridiculous. And I was like, oh my gosh, please tell our lovely storytellers about these glamour shots. So I admit it. I did it. I don't know why they're so popular. I think it's partly because it was, you know, fairly, for what you get, it's fairly inexpensive. Uh, but you show up at a, a fancy studio and there's like tons of different outfits that you can put on. So you basically could try on all these different personas and then you get a zillion photos and a, an album and you go with your friends. And so then you trade pictures with each other. And I remember I went with a friend, Desiree Ong, and we had so much fun. Like I still have pictures of the two of us in our different outfits. And I, I got one with like a cheap pow and like a biker's outfit. And I had a farmer, farm girl photo, which I'm like, why did I do that? But I, I look at them now and I just laugh. Like, they're so dorky. But you had to do it. Yes. I felt like I can really fit in, be accepted if I, at least amongst the Asian crowd in my high school, like, if I had these shots. Because those, I know those in my high school who couldn't travel to Taiwan, right? Or didn't have the time or couldn't get to Taiwan. I do remember... A lot of the students would end up going to Flushing Queens to these photo studios to try and kind of replicate those glamour shots from Taiwan. It was very much it impacted even Queens, like Flushing Queens, like that culture of the glamour shots where but then it's ended up the kids here in my school, like they were wearing like Tim's huge gold hoops and like very urban, like very like I'm cool kind of attitude. So like it's like if you had any one of those kind of glamour shots, it was almost like people were nicer to you. At least that's what I felt. It was so crazy. It was it's almost like currency. It was insane. Like you brought the shots, of course, back to to America with you. Like, did you notice people acting a little bit different with you? Were they like, ooh, like, or maybe it was almost like, oh, dang, she grew up and now she's looking sexual. Like she is cool. Like, I don't know what it is. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I had no idea that there was a whole subculture around the currency of it. <laughs> That's so funny. I just like, I shared a couple with my friends. And I remember being a little bit embarrassed, especially I went to church, I went to a Chinese, Cleveland Chinese Christian church. And so my uh, youth group members were a little bit shocked, I think. <laughs> but my husband, actually, he also went on love boat. He was a couple years before me. So he, you know, he totally gets it. And he actually jokes that they're his pinups. He, when, I, when we got married, he he enlarged a couple of them and put them up in our closet. Yes. I like your husband's <laughs> oh, sense of humor. Yeah. He's awesome. <laughs> I was like, what are those doing? Take those down. He said they're his pinups. So. Oh my God, Abigail, this is so fun. And okay, just a quick thing to jump in. So totally random side thought. But on this note, this could already be a part of your plan or maybe you already thought of this, but please, you need to scan those and put them as part of your promo when it comes time to release your book. I'm so serious. <laughs> or even if you want, you can even scan and send me and I will put it in your show notes. I'm like, this is exactly what we refer to. I am not even kidding. I'm like, I'm all about talking about this glamour shot culture here. Yeah. All right. It is part of our Taiwanese roots. Thank you for bringing up those, those <laughs> memories from our youth. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so serious. Like you've got to add it in your promo I would be all about I'll be like retweeting like crazy I may muster up the courage and send it to you and then maybe if you post you could post your own alongside it so we could be out there together 
<laughs> oh my gosh, I got to find them. It was crazy. I was just so happy that I got a chance to wear makeup and my mom let me because back then she's like, no, ma-. oh my gosh, she's so strict. I wasn't allowed to wear contacts, nothing or dye my hair. So I snuck all of that behind her back. You know, I ordered contacts back then when you didn't need a doctor's prescription, you would just type in the number. Like that was crazy. I wore color contacts. So this is the only time I remember where I'm like, oh, I actually get to like put makeup on and my mom is there and she doesn't mind and she's encouraging it. So I was very yeah. much all about it. I was a little shy, but then, you know, once I broke through that little shield, it was your moment. Of, yeah, I was like, listen, <laughs> bitches, listen up y'all for all of y'all hating on me, calling me ugly, duckling, look bitches. Yeah. That was totally me. So I'm like, you are way more modest. That's right. That's right. I actually, I did feel really ugly growing up. I think you really hit on something there. Like it was your opportunity to just feel beautiful. Exactly. Because I was the kid who not only wore glasses with crazy looking frames and patterns because they were like the cheapest ones from Pearl Vision or whatever my mom would find. Also, there was one time where I had blue tinted glasses. I think my mom was trying to get blue tinted to protect my eyes from the sun, but it was not a cute look. Plus, I had clear braces that ended up turning a little yellow. Let's Okay, sorry, that's a TMI and kind of gross, but let's be real. So I was definitely picked on. I mean, also just because I was one of the few Asians at the time in my elementary school and middle school, I was one of the very few, like handful. Right. Yeah. Same with me. Interesting. Like just talking about that where it's like not just simple shots, but it it represented so much. It represented us seeing ourselves like, okay, yeah, that is a person I see on the inside and it's now being reflected on the outside in a way. It was like a tool to allow us to feel pretty and to feel seen. Right. And that's actually exactly what it is for my character ever. You know, initially she's like taking these glamour shots as an act of rebellion because it's wasting money and it's like frivolous. But it actually does play a big a role in her journey of really embracing herself and realizing that she's beautiful in her yes. own way. Oh my God, Abigail, I'm like, oh my gosh, (laughs) why is your book not out yet? Hurry up. Okay, so again, all our listeners listening in right now, book is out already, Love Boat Taipei. We're chatting right before leading up to it. So we're talking as if like right before. So I'm just so fascinated by all of this, your main character ever. So this is pulled, it sounds like a lot from you or what I find a lot of authors normally do is they write about a version of someone either they're reflecting on their past or wishing that they were. So when I started writing this story, I knew that I wanted to write about the love boat experience. And just because it's such a weird, bizarre experience in the Asian American community that is, you know, fairly well known in certain circles, but not well known outside the community. And so I really trying to distill down what is the essence of a love boat experience. And so I had a lot of conversations with my husband about it. And Really what we came to is like, it's really about identity, discovery of your identity and all its facets, not just in terms of being between cultures, which it is very much you know about, but also what you love and what does it mean to pursue your dreams and to honor your parents. And also just what does it mean to be going through this experience as an Asian American between the United States and, and Asia. And so I didn't know who was going to be my main character. And I basically started writing and I, I just wrote all these different characters, which is why partly why I think I have so many characters. And over time, these four characters started to emerge. It's Ever Wong, who's from Ohio, growing up without very many Asian Americans around, who doesn't really know who she is. Rick, who is going to Yale. He's a prodigy. He's, he's kind of the guy who's held up for everyone else to emulate. And he has to blow off steam. Then there's Sophie, who's looking for love, and Xavier, who's a player. And they all have their own journeys of discovery going through the story. 
So I would say that the internal journeys, I draw a lot from my own experience of like trying to discover like who I was. Like I was like ever, I was similarly ashamed to pack anything weirdly Asian for lunch because I, I just hated the attention or the questions like, ew, what's that? And, you know, I think maybe if I had been a different kid, I would have been like, hey, let me tell you, these are tea eggs and they're awesome, right? And I, I just wasn't that kid and I wish it was. So I needed a trip like Taiwan to really help me embrace that part of myself that was actually so important. And when I look now, like I've been thinking a lot about even after writing the novel and just talking with the alumni of the program, I've been thinking a lot about what did this trip mean to me and what is it, what has it meant to this whole community of alum? Because there's thousands of alum now that came out of this program and some of them are quite well known, like Congressman Judy Chu. Really? Oh, yep. what? Eddie Huang, who wrote Fresh Off the Boat. Andrew Yang, our presidential candidate, his brother went on the boat. And, you know, Valerie So, who did the documentary for Love Boat this year. So there's a lot of really amazing people have come out of this program. And I'm like, why? What is it about this program? And I think there's really two things. And the first is for people like me, you know, I was healed in, in the ways that I needed to be healed in terms of embracing my own culture. And so I'm not coming to the table as half a person. I'm coming to the table with my whole self because I, I understand like the coolness of being Asian American and, and the cool parts of being of, of Chinese culture as well as American culture. And then the second part is really strange. And I, I've only come to this recently. But one of the things that Love Boat's known for is like there's completely no supervision. There is There are counselors and there's program heads, but really it's like a bunch of kids who've been studying hard their whole lives suddenly dropped off in this foreign country together with no supervision and they go crazy in the best of ways, right? And so I was there sneaking out, you know, going clubbing all night. So my husband like climbed over this water pipe and crossed over the river to get off campus. And that, that was the thing. Like I just met with some Love Boat alum last night here in Vancouver where I'm, I'm at today. And we were talking about like those moments hiding in the bushes when the counselors are after you with their flashlights. And, and I think the biggest takeaway that I've come to from that is that we learned that it was okay to rebel and it was a safe place to rebel. And that's actually really important in being a leader. Like you need to be willing to disrupt the status quo and to fight against authorities if they're, you know, if things need to be changed. And I think that's what Lovebo did for us in Asian American culture, traditionally, you're not rewarded for being the one that stands out and, and sticks out. You're supposed to stay in the system and respect the hierarchy. And we learned not to. We kind of were embarrassed about it. When I, when I would interview people, like they don't want anyone to know that they were on love but rebelling. But like, honestly, I think that was like one of the best gifts that we got from that program. And I'm, I'm only now beginning to appreciate that, especially working in Silicon Valley, where we are, you know, in venture capital, you're constantly looking for who's going to be the disruptor of this industry. Talking about your main character being from Ohio, you also grew up in Ohio. Growing up in your town, how did that impact you? I was definitely one of the few Asian Americans growing up in my community. In my grade, there were just two of us, myself and one of my good friends, Cindy Sher, who's half Korean. So I think the probably the biggest impacts on me is I mentioned before, I just I never felt attractive growing up. My eyes were smaller, I'm shorter. <laughs> I definitely don't fit the profile or the Western classical beauty model. And I would sometimes get compliments, but they would be compliments like, oh, you look like a little porcelain doll. And so like a part of me liked it. Part of me was like, what is a porcelain doll? Right? Like, it, it, you know, that's not really human. And I remember one time at work, you know, just, we were all sitting there. I think I was like sweeping the patio and my coworkers were sitting around talking and they were talking. Someone asked, like, would you ever date someone of a different race? And I wasn't in the conversation. I was just overhearing it. And the guy was like, no, I just am never attracted to anyone of a different race. And you know, for me, I didn't have any context uh, for, you know, I was just a kid in Ohio and that was my world. And, you know, it was one of those moments like, yeah, he would basically he was saying you'd never be attractive to someone like me. And so I just never felt attractive or like a girl. I remember, I think 
thinking that I just felt really androgynous. And it wasn't until I went to environments where there were other people were more familiar with people of different races that I started to feel seen and like, you know, boys had crushes on me. And that was so new and bizarre for me. And so Love Boat was similar, like, oh, you know, you go and it's especially in an environment like that with like all, so many kids of the same age. And like, it's kind of known, it's like you, there's some of the expectation that people are going to be meeting each other. That's when I really felt like, wow, you know, I, I guess I, I'm not ugly, right? <laughs> yeah, so I think that was a big part of my, you know, the impact of what does it mean to grow up a minority in Ohio? But, you know, I think there's actually been a lot of good that's come out of it, too, because I definitely feel like I've really experienced people from all parts of the country. And I really value that. I think that's been really important. And even in writing this book, I think having that sensibility has helped me to really write in a way that's accessible to Mm. more people. Well, you were born in West Virginia. And you're, I'm just so curious why your family, did they ever share with you growing up, like why they specifically chose West Virginia and then why they specifically chose to move to Ohio? Because I know with my family, I was always curious, like why New York City? And my parents were like, oh, because we always heard New York City is where all the opportunities are or a lot of it. So it's faster. My dad's like, you know, that was a place where we heard that, you know, we could make money. It's an economical purpose. My dad came to America with very little. We're talking about less than $100. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, yep. same with mine. There we go. Okay, so I guess they're not exaggerating. I'm like, because for me, I'm just like, how? Like, how do you survive and grow a business from $100? I would not be able to do it today. I'll just tell you right now, straight up. Our parents are so badass, so much respect to them to grow something out of literally almost nothing. And my mom, she chose to go to New York because she had hopes of going to NYU. She got accepted. She ended up going to Baruch. Also, she was helping to support her younger sisters and put them through high school when she was wow. only a few years older. Yes, that's just like my dad. Yeah, there we go. Your dad also helped to take care of his siblings. His family, right, right, and that's that was kind of what's expected, right? The older children take care of the younger ones, and like you're all in it together. Absolutely, and it, it shapes who you are, and it shapes like the whole family dynamic. Right. There's so much responsibility yes. and, and you take it on. It's a part of being a member of the family. Like your, your identity is very much wrapped up in the family. Are you the oldest child by any chance? I am. Yeah. So, so I take that, I, it comes with, you know, everything that comes with being the oldest child. But my brother, I think is a little different because he, he was a boy. And yeah. so a different set of expectations fell on his shoulders. But yeah, no, I, you asked, you know, how did we end up in West Virginia and Ohio? And it was, it was economic. My dad got a job in West Virginia and then he later went to Ohio. He was a chemical engineer with a business background. I'm going to jump back to the writing. Okay. Don't mind me. When you were doing all of this, I'm very familiar with Vermont College of Fine Arts. We love them. We actually work closely with VCFA. They're fantastic people. I'm curious, like why you chose VCFA because so many of our listeners have been wondering, you know, is MFA necessary? And if so, which ones? How do you know how to choose the ones that would be good for you? How do you know how to narrow that down? So can you walk us through that process and how it impacted you? And was VCFA where you also worked on Love Boat Taipei? Let me answer backwards. I started Love Boat Taipei in 2015. It was my final residency of VCFA. And I sat down with Shelly Tanaka, who's one of the faculty, and just kind of told her about this idea I was thinking about and ran through, at the time, like the, the plot arc that I had in mind, which actually ended up being completely changed. But as far as MFA programs, you know, I would say, you know, yes and no. I, I definitely needed the MFA program. I had taken my writing as far as I could on my own, and I just, I knew I was hitting a ceiling of some sort and not sure how to get through it. 
and I had friends who'd gone on the program before me, so and they raved about it. And so that's why I ended up applying to BCFA in particular. But you know, I think there's also a lot of opportunities to get writing help outside, you know, having critique groups. SCWI is a great resource. There's a number of other local conferences that you can go to. And some people I know work with writing coaches or in, in communities where you're just exchanging writing. So I don't think an MFA is necessarily the way to go for everybody. But, you know, for sure, find ways to get input into the writing, like whether it's a class or a critique group that you trust. So you mentioned that you feel like right now you're so much more confident with your writing and your craft just from having the education, putting yourself through the MFA program. Yes, I learned incredible amounts from my program. I think some of the biggest takeaways is for me, because character development is so hard, I learned about side writing which is like, you don't write a scene straight through. You actually need to write the same scene from multiple points of view of the characters that are in that scene so that every character, every character is coming into the scene with a goal and they're driving something forward. And that really impacts the way the entire scene plays out. That was a really important lesson for me to learn. And that's actually what one of the things that makes Love Boat Taipei work so well is I originally, because I couldn't decide who was going to be the main character, I wrote it from four different points of view. It was Ever, Rick, Xavier, and Sophie. And I wrote it in third person, past tense, alternating points of view. But it still wasn't working at that point. So I ended up doing all the side writing that I just described where I was taking each of the critical scenes and writing it from all their points of view. So I basically had written the entire novel four times from four different points of view. Oh my gosh. And then I had to scrap it all because it still wasn't working because it turned out like 120,000 words was not enough for four different storylines or at least four, you know, as main characters. So that's when I redid the entire thing from just Ever's point of view. But doing all that work of the side writing of each of these characters and the whole story from their points of view, like really, really nailed who they were and what they wanted and what they needed. And so that, that completely paid off with the final version. So yeah, so side writing of characters was huge. And then the other big one that I will often share with friends is scene structure. I learned this from Alan Cummins, who was my faculty advisor in my second semester. And I studied Janet Burroway's book, which is really helpful. But like he told me that a scene needs to be structured like a joke. The punchline comes at the end and it's usually an emotional point, but a joke would be ruined if you like gave the punchline and then you explained afterwards why it was funny. And so everything needs to be set up before you hit that punchline so that it, it falls and it stays with your reader in the strongest way. And so that was, that transformed my scenes. So I think I needed those lessons. Not everyone does. I just cannot get over how many times you've been writing, rewriting, 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 you mentioned that you were talking to the alumni from Love Boat and also the people running it. So what was that research process like? Did you go back to Taiwan as like a research trip just for this book? So I did. Yeah. So, yes! I, I, originally, <laughs> so I originally wrote the book from memory and you know I needed to write it for myself first. And then after that, I, I did take a trip to Taiwan by myself, which is really bizarre because I've only traveled with my family. But I visited the Chenton campus where the um, Love Boat program takes place. And then I did the tour around the island, which also appears in the book. And it was actually, it turned out to be really important. I really underestimated how important it was to be immersed in Taiwan again. And what I found along the way is just, I found all these points of connection for my character. And I was able to really dig deeply into what she was feeling and how she would feel in each moment. And so the, the biggest thing I think that does end up showing up in the novel is there are these moments when she would run into like a platter of fried eggs or salted eggs, which her father would love to, like she would make them with her father. She'd watch her father making salted eggs or um, dragon fruit, which is her mom's favorite fruit. And she would suddenly think of her parents. And even though she was super angry with them at this point, 
she would think of them and like remember them. And it was, those are really important moments for her that I think just really grounded her. I wouldn't have found those moments if I hadn't gone. Mm, Oh my gosh, those little details are key. It adds so much more life to the story. Side question, how much food is involved in your book? Because I'm all about the food in Taiwan, of course, because you just mentioned dragon fruit. I'm like, yes. (laughs) Yeah, so there is. I think her first experience of food is bubble tea. She's uh, waiting in line of registration and there's a counselor walking by with these cups of brown liquid and there's these balls swirling in the bottom third. And she's like, what is this? Right. So I actually, this is super exciting. So I have to share this. There's a bubble tea shop in California called Teaspoon and they have created a special drink just for Love Boat Taipei. Are you joking? No, I, it's so crazy. Amazing. Like it's called Passion Attraction and they're going to actually serve it at my launch party at Kepler's on January 6th. And then they're going to, they're actually going to have it in their stores. Wait, excuse me, miss. How on earth did this happen? Right. Seriously. So, you know, when we talk about how our identity is very much caught up with our families, I think that also extends like just to the general community. Like there have been some amazing people just super excited about the book. And like, especially as the word gets out more and more people are excited about just having our stories out there. And so Olivia Chen, she was like, you know what, this would be awesome if we work together Teaspoon. So she kind of made the introductions and I ended up interviewing the founder of Teaspoon and we did a a visit to his factory and got a behind the scenes tour of a bubble tea factory. So that's on my Instagram. And then this came up. So (laughs) I did a little video shooting with them a couple weeks ago in one of their stores and read the passage whenever tries bubble tea for the first time. And she's like, whoa, I've never tried anything with solids before that she sucks it up. She's like, oh, it's good. And her friend starts laughing at her because she's like, ever you like, you just have no idea. (laughs) They haven't put out their video yet, but they're creating a video of me tasting passion attraction for the first time. So that's coming as well. We want to make sure that's in your show notes page. So that'll be really fun. And I'm sure that will be out by the time your episode is out. Yeah, it's, it totally fits with 88 cups of yes, tea. Yes, there we go. <laughs> it could be one of the 88. It could be your 89 cup of tea. Abigail, I'm so happy for you. We need more stories like this. Just having your book, it allows kids, especially teenagers during an age, especially when you're feeling a lot more self-conscious about your place in the world, where you belong, who you are, who you are allowed to be. And having a book like yours for those who look like us or have any connections or ties and roots to Taiwan to really feel like, okay, we are here and we can take up space and we can understand and experience through your words. And also for those who are outside of the community can have a glimpse. It's incredible what you are doing. So thank you for putting this story out there. Before we wrap it up, may I please ask you more craft question. What has been the most difficult scene that you've run into? I know you were telling us about the tips and tricks that you learned from BCFA and how you applied it when you were having trouble with the characters. But was there a specific scene or anything, a detail that you were really having trouble with and just was like almost about to give up? Can you walk us through that and how you got yourself out of that? Oh, I love this question. <laughs> I have to think. I'm going to have to think about this one. <laughs> yes, no worries. So let me think. Difficult scene. I don't want to spoil anything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just thinking through like, definitely, you know, one of the key storylines is about Ever's relationship with her parents. And I think her dad, especially, she has like a special relationship with him. So one of the early stories that she tells is how she and her sister watched Mulan together. And the part where Mulan comes forward with, Mulan has come to this incredible experience of saving all of China and having the entire 
all of Beijing bow to her and the emperor too. And she comes home and all she wants is for her father to accept her. So she thrusts all her honors at him saying, look, I brought you this sort of Shan Yu and this helmet. And, and her father sits it all aside and says, the only thing brings me joy is having a daughter like you. So in this moment, my sister and I, and my brother was there too, but my sister and I were bawling. And um, this is a true story out of my own life. And then they find out that the dad has watched this movie too. And it was similar for me. We found out my dad had watched this watch Mulan on the plane to China. And we were like, no way, dad doesn't watch cartoons with us. And, you know, especially we're like, wow, that's so cool. And then my sister's like, did you cry? And dad's like, yeah, I'm like, no way, really? Like, oh my gosh, he gets it. So like, which part did you cry in? And he's like, when the Huns invaded China. <laughs> such a funny bittersweet moment where you're like oh my god he does not get it right and he obviously gets it in his own way very different experience and so it's this big moment to disconnect for my character and her dad and so bringing that arc to a close at the end and what that looks like that was like really really hard but really important and I think it, it taught me a lot about my own relationship with my parents too so I, I don't want to say too much and spoil the story but I would say maybe that when finding an editor for your book how did you select him or her. The reason why I want to ask this is because I feel like it's so important that whoever you're working with that closely, they are your right-hand person. They are your champion. Editors are supposed to be able to see the holes in the story and bring things together, tighten it up, make it even stronger than it already is. Shouldn't they know or really understand or at least be very close to the Taiwanese culture or like at least an understanding of it to be able to see your heart and soul behind the entire story and really like pull that out or it doesn't matter to you as much it's more so about understanding characters and plot this is a really great question my editor is Kristen Pettit and she's Italian-American and she actually edited the R.L. Stein books which I devoured growing up so that was really cool to find that out and she told me like what she loved about the story was that it was so relatable and she could completely see her own family in it and I think that was really cool for me to hear that. Like it's so specific to a culture and these particular characters and their particular struggles, but that's actually a, a craft point. Like the more specific you are for some reason, like it works in counterintuitively, the more relatable it becomes somehow. So I really appreciate having that perspective from her. And I think what I, I ultimately went with her because she had the biggest vision for my whole life, not just this one book or even my writing career, but she was like, you've got this really incredible job. I want to make it all work for you. And that was really cool. So I, I appreciated that. Thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into that. You are the perfect person to ask this because you are doing so many things and you have a family. How are you able to schedule in your time to make this work with your writing? What are you doing? Like if you could give us a glimpse of your day-to-day -day real quick, like a snapshot for you, what is that? How does it best work around your day to then make time and carve out for writing? So I would say I haven't figured out the balance. Okay. Every day is a constant struggle, I think, to find what it is. I think what's worked so far is I probably time shift, right? So I, I made some hard choices. Like going in-house as a lawyer, I, I did feel like I was stepping off the path, the kind of the, the hard-charging path in the law, you know, at a law firm. But it was the right choice for my writing and also to give me time to raise my children at the time. And then when I was working, I wrote from nine to 12 at night. And that was a habit that my husband actually built into me. I used to complain that he was like working. So like, he's like, why don't you step and work with me? And so I did. So then I, it became a habit. So I put on the tea kettle at 9 PM and then I just got a second wind. It would start writing, but I do have to just force myself to carve out 
times to write like, okay, I'm just going to be disciplined. I can't, I can't go to these other fun things that I want to do because I, this is my only time I have to write. I need the headspace to do it. And so that's actually where I'm struggling now. And so I work with a really amazing person. Amir Kashashahi is the co-founder of the startup I mentioned that we acquired and he's been just really incredibly supportive. So giving me, making sure that I have the time that I need for this book tour. And, you know, so that's been enormously helpful and it's, why I don't need to quit my job because he's helping me to make it work. But, you know, again, it's time shifting. So like I'm, I'm starting to shift some of my work towards post-tour at this point in time and then just doing, just doing things that are really critical right now. So having these conversations about like what and trying to understand yourself, like what is it that you want and need? Like my kids right now, they, they need me for certain things too. So then I, I, I push off some of the writing to do that. But it's not easy and I don't think I have the balance yet. And I, even now I'm still wondering like, okay, what else do I need to peel off like to make this all work? And I think I'm constantly asking that question. Oh, wow. That was so good. Thank you for that transparency. I appreciate that. And then just to know like you're still figuring it out, yet you're still moving forward. Not letting that stop you is already so inspiring in itself. How do your kids feel about this? They know that mom is a writer and they're super supportive, I assume. Yeah. So I think what's been great for them is they've seen how hard the road has been and how long I've been writing. And so they're super excited now that it, the book, you know, the book's coming out and there's been a lot of other exciting news behind the scenes. You know, I've had a chance to include them on some of the calls. And one time we got off a phone call, a certain phone call and my older son, Aiden, he's like, mom, this doesn't seem real. <laughs> it's like, I know it's crazy. So, so it's been really fun. So my, my older son, Aiden also writes stories. He's got an incredible voice. Wait, how old is he? Do you mind me asking? Yeah, I know he's 17. Wait, girl, why do you look like you are like 20? I'm very confused. Wait, what? I know. I have a really funny story. I don't think he'll mind me sharing. We went out with him and my other son, who's 12. We went out to lunch together and someone thought my son and I were married and that our my younger one is our kid. Oh <laughs> so funny. We what? just like laughed. It was hilarious. But yeah, I had kids really young, especially in you know, this day and age. But I, I enjoy being like a younger mom because I feel like I'm really close to my kids. Yeah. And then, of course, writing in the young adult space, I'm kind of in their headspace. Exactly. There we go. You have the best research tools <laughs> with you. Yes. Exactly. And then my younger one is a composer. So he wow. um, he composes music at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. And I just love his music. I'm oh my a complete gosh. doting mom. But I also think he's really he's really good. We just enjoy a lot of this creative stuff together. And in addition to that, they're also programmers. So they, they program in artificial intelligence. Of course. You create the most brilliant children, most well-rounded children. Why am I not surprised at all? You have been so wonderful to have on this podcast. Can you please let listeners know, I'm going to squeeze in this final question. It could be a super quick answer if you want, is um, small manageable steps that you would advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals. Mm, I would say like, try to write a couple hundred words a day, but if that's too much, like a couple hundred words a week and you get there eventually. But yeah, just having a, some of adding in the discipline, even if you're not feeling inspired, but then also when you are inspired, you know, drop everything and write it down. It, it, so you have that to go back to in massage. Yes. I love that. Now, what book or books are your favorite, you know, whether it's craft related for our listeners to learn from or a book that blew your mind in regards to storytelling and just open your eyes to what, you know, writing can be. So I love reading books that are outside of what I do. Uh, so Jean Yang's American Born Chinese was huge for me. And it's a graphic novel. So, you know, very different. It's, it's all visual. And I think I, people have told me that my writing is also quite visual. So maybe in some ways, those other mediums have, have inspired me in that way. 
I love movies. I actually watched a lot of movies as I learned to write. And I followed along with the time marker at the bottom so I could see the plot points and what they what times, what percentage of the show that they would hit. And that was super helpful. Like it really is clockwork. Like at the midpoint, this happens and the three quarters mark, this happens. But yeah, there's a couple books that I, you know, I mentioned Laura Ingalls, C.S. Lewis. I love The Road by Cormac McCarthy, which is very dark, but very simple. Like just one clear goal throughout this entire book. Like this father is just trying to keep his son alive and it's incredibly spare and so elegant. And I think the genius really is in its simplicity. Mm, Beautiful. Okay. Thank you so much. We're going to have those listed in your show notes page now. Oh my gosh, Abigail, please let everyone know where they can find you online to say hi. And also where they can find more information about your tour that you mentioned that's coming up. Yeah. So my website is probably the best source of like comprehensive information. It has my tour schedule there. And that's abigailhingwen.com. And uh, I'll be in you know, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Dallas, Texas, Seattle, Portland, Denver, Baltimore. I'll probably drop by DC. I'll be in Philadelphia for some events. And I'll be in London in July to do an event with Simon and Schuster. That's incredible. Oh my gosh, Abigail, I'm so excited for you. Are you excited? How are you feeling? I'm crazy excited. Yeah, it's, <gasps> it's still unbelievable to me. Are you a little <laughs> so, nervous? Are you like real talk, like right before your book is coming out? How are you feeling right now? I'm both. I'm like terrified and I'm also like super excited just to connect and meet with meet lots of people and, and just share ideas. And that wraps up my conversation with Abigail Hing Wen. Abigail, thank you so much for your time and sharing so many valuable crafting tips. And thank you for stirring up all those fun memories. I loved our conversation. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to stop by and say hi to Abigail on Twitter at Abigail Hing Nguyen to download her writing prompt and find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation. Head on over to Abigail's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash Abigail dash Hing dash Wen. I am so thrilled to thank Epic Reads for bringing our community today's conversation. Abigail Hingwen's debut book, Love Boat Taipei, was featured in Seventeen Magazine and Bustle's Most Anticipated Books of 2020. Think Sarah Dessen meets Crazy Rich Asians in this young adult debut that follows a Chinese-American girl sent from Ohio to Taiwan to study Mandarin for a summer she'll never forget. Seba Tahir, one of our previous storytellers on the podcast, raves that Love Boat Taipei is a unique story from an exciting and authentic new voice. And Stephanie Garber, another one of our previous storytellers on the podcast, hails this debut as equal parts surprising, original, and intelligence, an intense rush of rebellion and romance. Storytellers, make sure to pick up your copy of Love Boat Taipei wherever books are sold. Don't forget to stop by our Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea to catch Abigail's Instagram takeover and to also try your luck at winning a copy of her book. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. 